Welcome to today's podcast, the inside story of Tipper X. At age 28, Tom Harden was a junior partner at an up-and-coming equity hedge fund. He was on track to achieve his dream career, but before long, felt like he was falling behind in an increasingly competitive industry. Then he made a decision to cross a very important line and was later charged with felony securities fraud. Known as Tipper X, he became the FBI's most productive cooperating witness in a sting operation set up to target the hedge fund industry. The sting became the largest insider trading investigation in 25 years, leading to over 80 guilty pleas or convictions. Since resolving his case in 2015, Tom consults and speaks on insider trading, conduct risk, ethics, and compliance issues from this former frontline perspective. In this podcast, Rain Serena Vash sits down with Tom, now founder of Tipper X Advisors, which engages with investment firms that seek to enhance their compliance and ethics culture beyond traditional employee training, leveraging the lessons learned from his cautionary tale and providing insights into the whys and hows of human behavior. With that, I'll turn it over to today's host, Serena Vash. Serena? Thanks, Greg. Illegal insider trading refers generally to buying or selling a security in breach of a fiduciary duty or other relationship of trust and confidence on the basis of material, non-public information about the security. Insider trading violations may also include tipping such information, securities trading by persons tipped, and securities trading by those who misappropriate such information. Perhaps the most well-known tipster in any insider trading case was known for a period of time only as Tipper X. For nearly seven years, our guest today, Tom Harden, lived with being Tipper X, the seminal informant in the biggest insider trading case in a generation. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Serena. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to start with that fateful day when you received a phone call from a colleague, Rumi Khan. Can you talk a little bit about meeting Ms. Khan and tell us about the phone call that changed the trajectory of your life? Absolutely. So I graduated from Wharton undergrad in 1999 and started working in the hedge fund business, uh, working for a hedge fund uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut that focused on investing in technology companies, equities. And so my job as an analyst uh, entailed a lot of trips to Silicon Valley, where the tech companies uh, operate, and Asia, where the tech tech goods are made. Um, so through the course, the first few years of my career, I would meet a lot of companies and other investors. Um, investors I would often meet at broker conferences. So a Goldman or Morgan puts together um, a conference for their hedge fund clients where they invite senior management of these tech companies to present uh, their stories in PowerPoint and then uh, select investors get to meet with management later in one-on-one and, and group meetings. Um, throughout the course of early in my career, I met many investors. Um, one potential investor I met, was her name was Rumi Khan. She worked in Silicon Valley in the late 1990s. At one point um, in the year 2000, she had worked for an individual uh, named Raj Rajaratnam at the Galleon Group. Uh, in 2001, I met her uh, at a conference at this point. She was working as a consultant to a few uh, tech stock-focused hedge funds. And I met her, uh, as I met many investors early in my career, you'd see somebody at a company presentation or group meeting, and you'd start talking about, you know, what kind of stocks do you like? What's, what are you looking at? What sectors do you cover? 
and I could tell just by talking to her for a minute, I was probably 23 years old, uh, that she didn't seem like the most ethical person in terms of how she was going about doing her research, the kind of information, uh, you know, uh, material, non-public information she was trying to get, as you outlined at the beginning. Um, and you're going to see later that she's the individual who tipped me on four trades that I placed on material, non-public information, or as I'll call it, uh, MNPI. Um, and I would only talk to her maybe every eight weeks as I was at these conferences early in my career. But through the course of my career, I went from talking to her every uh, two months to every month to once a week. And so by the time uh, in 2007, I got that fateful call in my office uh, in March. And she called me and said that I helped her make a lot of money over the years on some great ideas, uh, investing in some great uh, stock ideas, and that she had a piece of information for me. Um, and she went on to say that she had spoken to an analyst at Moody's who was roommates with her cousin who had told her that Kronos was going to be acquired next week, this date, this price, by this private equity firm, uh, Hellman and Friedman. Um, it was a very stark fact pattern the way I just laid it out. Um, at this time in the industry, I understood other firms to be engaged in this type of trading. You know, you would have a hedge fund hire analysts from Intel and other technology companies because they had contacts back inside those companies who would give them information. And it was understood around 2006 that certain firms operated this way. Um, you could see in sort of their, their filings with the SEC that some of the biggest positions at firms where individuals were later charged um, were often in stocks before they were acquired. So I did come into possession of material non-public information uh, in March of 2007. You sure. indicated that when you met Ms. Khan, you you sort of knew right away that, that there were some red flags. Why did you continue to engage with her in conversation and continue to have um, business relationships with her sure. if that was your initial impression? She lived in the Silicon Valley area. I lived on the East Coast. Um, she was working as a consultant to a few uh, hedge funds where she would be kind of an outsourced analyst and she would be able to meet with several companies uh, every week uh, because she lived in the area where a lot of you know tech companies reside. And so she was kind of my eyes and ears um, within meetings that I wasn't able to make because of where I was located. So I would check in with her maybe once a week just to see who he, she met with that week. And she was just a good resource on you know legitimate um, information um, you know up to that point of March in 2007 where she would just meet with companies constantly. So I was able to talk to her as I talked to other investors just about who they were meeting with, what they were hearing, what kind of trends they were seeing in the industry because technology changes so rapidly. If you're not on top of the changes, you know you can get you can get left behind. Uh, and so I, that's why I primarily you know continue to have a dialogue with her about once a week we check in. And when she called you in March 2007 and provided you this information about Kronos, what did you think about the information she was giving you, and what did you do with it? Well, it sounded very stark, and as I said, it sounded material and non-public. I hadn't necessarily had the training on insider trading through my career in terms of the elements, but I didn't make any trades in Kronos at this point. But the next day, I was talking to a friend who worked at a proprietary trading firm, who I probably talked to once or twice a month. Um, we were just talking about, again, about stocks, ideas, investments we were looking at. And kind of as a throwaway comment uh, at the end of our conversation, uh, he had asked me, was I hearing anything else out there? Um, kind of what was the chatter going on in the other stocks? 
And I let him know uh, that I was told by a friend that a Moody van was told her that Kronos was going to be acquired next week. Now, just pausing right there as an analyst, I've acted quite recklessly by tipping that information to him, but I haven't yet traded yet. But I've still exposed myself civilly, obviously, to being charged with insider trading just by tipping. Um, so I look at today and then the risk of just sitting on a trading desk and passing on the rumors. Um, and now that he has this information, I have no idea what he's going to do with it, what he, what's going to happen down down the tipping chain. And it turns out he shared it with this guy who sat next to him, whose name was uh, Zvig Offer, who would ultimately uh, be charged with uh, securities fraud and sentenced to prison for 10 years. And apparently Goffer um, made a name for himself trading quite a bit on material non-public information. So he bought several hundred thousand shares of Kronos of my information. Uh, Rumi Khan let me know that she had most of her personal trading account in this stock for this event. Um, I haven't made any trades yet, uh, but in the next day or two, uh, that changed. Um, the, reason, the reason that insider trading is illegal is because it gives the insider an unfair advantage in the market, puts the interest of the insider above those to whom they owe a fiduciary duty, and it allows an insider to artificially influence the value of a company's stock uh, at an important time uh, in that, that company's uh, traje- business trajectory. So when you got that information, you know, w- were you thinking about that? Were you thinking about whether or not you could use it or should use it? And what kind of training had you had about what constituted insider trading? Uh, my training in my career up to this point, I had worked for uh, mainly smaller hedge fund managers um, where it was often a very uh, skeleton investment staff, maybe a, a portfolio manager and a few other analysts, and um, but nothing, uh, no, no substantive compliance training. I mean, I can tell you that the training I had up to that point uh, was, you know, don't, don't email anything you wouldn't want on the front of the Wall Street Journal. So that's still great advice today, obviously, but not uh, as substantial as it is not today. But, you know, not going to the specific elements of materiality, uh, non-public mm-hmm. breach of duty, uh, none of that. But, you know, I could tell the way she framed how she got the information, it sounded uh, like it, w- it wouldn't be right to trade on it at that time. That's what it sounded like, at least. Uh, whether it was uh, whether I was exposing myself to criminal or, or civil liability, I didn't know the nuance of that. But it, at least it sounded like something she had never mentioned to me before. That that specific. So you not only passed on the information, but you also did ultimately trade on it, didn't you? I did. Um, the next day, I was talking to my friend who I passed the information on to, and he had asked me, you know. Hey, Tom, have you bought any yet? Dude, did you buy some is what he said. And as a junior partner at my firm, I could initiate a less than 1% position of our portfolio um, equity in a stock. Uh, so I could take uh, w- less than 1% of the, of the portfolio, invest in a stock, kind of as a starter position, something I'm working on before I talk to my senior partner about whether we should do more work on the position or sell it. Um, and so... I, I bought a 0.9% position in our portfolio in Kronos, and I can tell you that I basically uh, rationalized uh, why I did it. I bought the stock. I really looked at it as, you know, I, I know I'm crossing the line, but who am I hurting? Um, it seemed to me at that time, as I said, at other technology stock and healthcare stock-focused hedge funds that several firms were engaged in this type of trading I even told myself my version of doing it isn't as bad, which sounds ridiculous today, but at that time I was able to convince myself that that was okay. And I could actually still think of myself as a good person and cross these lines because, frankly, 
through my life, um, you know, I'd been able to cross uh, lines and commit acts. I mean, not that it's the same thing, but going back to when I was uh, 17 and got my license, you know, I would go 10 over the speed limit, but wouldn't go 20 because that's where you get caught. Uh, in college, Napster came out, um, and so I would download a few songs every week, knowing that that was illegal. Uh, in 2003, online gambling was illegal. I did a little bit of that. So it's not the same as insider trading, but my mindset at that time that I wasn't – it didn't take like a Bernie Madoff master criminal mind to commit securities fraud. Literally, every point in my life, I'm in a situation where I'm able to do something uh, technically illegal, and just by 29, uh, the age I was when I placed this trade, I was doing it. Again, the same sort of pattern and the same mindset. So on one hand, you're talking about taking a 0.9% position. So on one hand, you're taking a very small position and rationalizing that it's a small position, it's very minimal, it's not really hurting anyone. And on the other hand, you're taking the 0.9% position so that you don't have to talk to your senior partner about what you're doing, so that you don't have to run it by somebody else. Talk to me a little bit about about that sort of dynamic between minimizing and at the same time doing it in a way to fly under the radar of your partner. No, absolutely. Um, so as you said, I, I told myself, you know, this is an immaterial trade. Um, and if I escalated it with him, maybe he would say no. Um, so to not even have to have that discussion, I kept it small enough where I knew I wouldn't have to talk to him. Um, and basically, as I look at it here, what I'm doing um, of course, sort of a generalized term for this is I'm engaging in what I call isolated decision-making. I mean, I didn't talk to him, my boss, my partner. I didn't talk to anybody in compliance. I didn't run this by anybody outside my firm. I decided to cross this line on my own um, and engage in this type of behavior and do it um, because I kept it small and told myself, well, if these other firms are engaging in this type of trading at much bigger size and they've never been caught, like, why would I ever be caught because I'm I'm making a small trade? And that was not the only time that you received information from Ms. Khan that you traded on. Am I right? That's right. So uh, about uh, two or three days later, the news came out exactly as she said. So at this point, I would like to tell you that I kind of freaked out and said, oh, my God, I'm never going to do this again. This was exactly perfect information. Uh, but the problem is, I got kind of an endorphin rush, like a, a gambler's high, like I knew something nobody else knew. Oh, my God. And the next week when I'd go to conferences and saw some of these sort of smaller micro networks at the conferences who shared this type of information with each other, which, whom I was never a part of, I could kind of stick my chest out and say I knew about Kronos, and I actually know about the next deal, um, which was Hilton, which was coming up uh, a few months um, later. And so um, – the problem is, I think, once you cross that line and you're not caught, whatever the behavior is, it becomes easy to do it again. Uh, nobody after Kronos said, you know, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. Um, nobody said anything. And so it became easy to engage in the behavior three more times and three more trades. Um, Hilton was acquired, the hotel company, by Blackstone Group. Uh, we're a technology stock-focused hedge fund. I'm buying shares of Hilton a week before the announcement. I mean, that's that's how brazen it got. Um, Google was going to miss their quarterly estimates, so the stock would trade down, and 3Com was acquired. So this was over a period of six months in 2007 where I received these four tips from Khan. She called you again in December 2007 and uh, gave you some other kind of information. What did she tell you in December 2007? She called me, and she was freaking out, saying, oh, she had just gotten a call from the SEC about these four trades. 
what should she tell the SEC? Specifically, they were asking her about Hilton, and she made up some silly excuse like, oh, I'm going to tell them Paris Hilton was in the news, you know, something ridiculous. That's why she bought it. But I thought, you know, oh, my God, uh, what if the SEC actually is looking at who she called? So I better have a reason why I bought these stocks. So um, I thought I had reasons because they were small that if the SEC ever called me, uh, I would just be able to sort of tell them something and hopefully brush them off um, and not start a full-blown investigation. So I had a kind of a plan in place in case the SEC were to give me a phone call. Um, however, um, like the boxer Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, and so July 8, 2008 uh, was the day that pretty much changed my life forever. Before we get to July 8, can you tell me, did you talk to anybody else about this? Did you did you let anybody else know what you were doing? And when you got that call um, from Ms. Khan in December saying, I think the SEC has called and what should we say, did you seek out any advice from anyone about what to do with the potential predicament that you were in? So the first question, after I received the Kronos information, which was the first tip, a couple of days after I received it, I was talking uh, to two other investor friends uh, during the course of a week. They both managed uh, small hedge funds. Um, I knew them to be, I thought of them at least as highly ethical. Uh, both of them knew them to do a lot of work, uh, research on investments before ever taking a position. And I thought when I called them uh, and, and I was talking to them, and at the end of our conversation, I said, you know, I got a weird call from uh, a friend today with very specific information. The Moody's analyst told her Cornell was going to be acquired next week. Um, knowing them, uh, sort of bouncing it off of them, I thought at least one of them would say, what the heck uh, are, are you telling me this for, um, you know, and hung up the phone. Or, uh, But both of them heard me out and snickered and were set, said, oh, I can't believe you know something like this, Tom. What the heck, I'll just buy some small stock too. So I'd say looking back today at that time, those sort of peer reactions, people that I thought highly of, I was able to bring them into this conduct and they actually placed the trades. And, um, you know, the peer reactions were a big reason I think I was able to do it again and not stop at Kronos. I'd like to think had one of them slapped me around on Kronos, maybe I would have continued with that first trip, but maybe would have stopped. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't stop. At the end of 2007, when she called, um, I didn't talk to a lawyer, didn't tell my partner. Honestly, I was just hoping it would it would fade away. And so it seemed like January, February, March, April, she wasn't worried about the SEC anymore, you know, getting into up to July. And so really, I was I, I hoped that this would kind of fade away, that uh, I could just continue on, uh, you know, in my career. And so July 8th, 2008, as Mike Tyson said, you got punched in the face. Yeah, uh, it was 6.30 in the morning. Um, I was out dropping off my dry cleaning on the way to work. As I stepped out into the sidewalk to hail a cab, uh, somebody said, are you Tom? And I turned around, and it was a gentleman in dark suit. Uh, he and another female, both in dark suits, uh, I said yes. And then the wallets came out, so the FBI wallets, just you know, a scene, a scene out of the movies. And they said, uh, can you sit down with us? We'd like to talk to you. And so I sat down with them uh, at a, I think it was a little bodega there at 55th and 8th uh, in Manhattan. And they said, Tom, we know about those trades. Uh, we know that you were just down in Atlanta visiting your nephew for his baptism on Sunday, two days before. So uh, this is my first time, obviously, ever being approached by the FBI, and my head is spinning, and I'm sitting down with them, and they're talking about these trades I made. And my first thought that popped into my head was, oh, my God, my dad's going to be so upset about this. You know, that was my first thought. Uh, oh, my God, my wife's going to find out because I had only been married two years. 
holy crap, this might impact my career. Oh my God, I might be going to prison. But that was, uh, that was my line of thinking. Um, I immediately started making implicating statements on those Ford trades, confirming everything they heard, you know, probably filling in some holes they didn't have at that point because I just started speaking. And then they, they stopped me at one point and said, asked me if I knew about illicit trading going on in the industry. And I said, yes, to my knowledge, it's pretty rampant. Uh, they pulled out a web of names, um, which I could not see, uh, but there were two big targets as far as I could tell on the chart. It looked like, um, you know, to my knowledge, at least in the industry, that one of them might be uh, Mr. Roger Rodnam. Uh, just my speculation, uh, they folded the chart up and said that I had the opportunity to help them build some of these bigger cases, that I should take their card, think about it, and call them when I was ready. And so I went to work that day. It was the summer of 2008, you know, the middle of the financial crisis. Um, waited a few hours, uh, finally called the FBI. I wasn't allowed to tell anybody other than my wife. Um, called the FBI and said, I do know of illicit trading going on, um, but what does it even mean to help you? How could I possibly help? And then they said at that point, I was going to have to start wearing a body wire uh, for them recording people in conversations about um, either illicit trades they had made on material non-public information or just getting people in conversations about corrupt contacts they might have inside some of these te technology companies in Silicon Valley. So with, in July 2008, my uh, year and a half, two years of cooperation started with the FBI. And talk a little bit about that time, the year and a half or two years of cooperation with the FBI. What did it entail? Uh, what did you do for them? And, and sort of what was your what was your charge? What were you supposed to be doing? So uh, it was a one-way street in terms of I needed to bring uh, them individuals uh, who I, again, felt might be trading an MNPI or have corrupt contacts inside tech companies. So it wasn't like they said, can you bring us this person? They would, they just asked me, who could I bring them? And so I went and sort of made a list of who I felt were the most corrupt people in the industry at this time, more by reputation than any, than any real, real personal relationship I had. But I would build these relationships with individuals over the course of the next year and a half, um, seeing people face to face, uh, wearing a wire. The wire in 2008 looked like the old battery in the Blackberry. If you remember that the size that inch or too big fit in my front pocket, I'm sure it's different today. Uh, but that was my, my charge to get people in these conversations. I was often coached. I was always coached beforehand. This is what I should start the conversation with. This is what I should say if the person says this, sort of have a plan. Um, but always let the person talk, give the person space to talk. Um, I did a poor job in the beginning of these conversations because I'd ask very pointed questions. And oftentimes I get a weird sort of response or look, or I felt it was a weird look from the target. I felt like, oh, maybe they're onto me, that type of thing. So I filled the silence because I was nervous and eventually got coached up pretty well uh, by the agents to help them uh, build some of these cases or get people in these conversations. So uh, this went on the course over, over the next year and a half. One individual who I probably got, I would say, at least 12 conversations, uh, 2008, 2009, was saying nothing. One Sunday, he gave me a call. He was living in the suburbs um, of New York. I lived in, in Manhattan, as I said. He asked me to have dinner with him that Sunday. I called the agents and said, uh, this guy wants to have dinner tonight. You know, he'd never said anything over the course of the year. They met me at Grand Central, gave me the wire. I took the train out to where this individual lived. Um, he picked me up at the train station in this town, and he said, Tom, uh, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. Uh, we're going swimming uh at his mother's house and said so we drive to this old uh, mansion in this town. He starts disrobing in this room. So he wants to see if something's taped to my chest. My heart's racing. I excused myself, went to the restroom, 
uh, put the wire in my jeans, put the swim trunks on. So it's the two of us uh, walking out to this pool. It's so quiet. I see like a shovel against the house, a hole on the ground. I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy going to try to kill me or something. And I got in the swimming pool and we're playing this awkward game of catch with this tennis ball. So he's really pouring on the psychological torture. And then he says, Tom, uh, I have one question for you. You've been acting kind of weird. Have you been approached by the SEC? And truthfully, I could say nothing about the SEC. This was, uh, you know, uh, and then he started making implicating statements about some of those stocks I'd asked him about. And so that that was about as hairy as it got to my cooperation in terms of feeling in danger. Uh, the FBI always did a threat assessment on the target, um, but I think that caught them off guard. And then so by May of 2009, I was informed by the FBI that it would be time for me to talk uh, talk to a lawyer uh, and start my proper session with the AUSAs. So prior to that, prior to May 2009, did you contact a lawyer? I did not. You know, people often ask me, don't, don't I watch Law & Order? You're always supposed to talk to a lawyer before you talk to the FBI. Um, I didn't. I was just going at their sort of discretion. I, I had only talked to my wife um, for the entire year, you know, leading up to, to talking to the uh, the 10 months later, talking to a lawyer. So I went, uh, talk, spoke to a lawyer, hired him, and it was kind of surreal because I think he was used to somebody talking to a lawyer the, f- the first time the FBI approaches them. And uh, he said, you know, you're supposed to hire a lawyer the first time, you know, when the FBI approaches you. And I said, you know, it's my first time doing this. So I didn't really have any excuses. My 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 case is pretty straightforward at this point. I'm cooperating, so I'm pleading guilty. Uh, and then I start my proffer with the AUSAs. And then uh, my, my date is set for December 2009 to plead guilty. And I didn't really know, honestly, if my cooperation was leading to anything. It wasn't clear to me. But exactly, I was getting, I mean, I was getting information from these agents, but I wasn't sure if it would really lead to anything until um, it was October 16, 2009, when the first 12 arrests happened in, in the industry. Um, I was in the hospital. Uh, my wife had just given birth to our first daughter, and I turned on the TV and saw people being arrested, uh, Mr. Roger Ottenham and others in the industry, and 20 names then were unsealed uh, that day. So uh, that was just um, the first time names were actually released. But your name was not released at that time. Your, your name was released right. sometime much later. Is that right? That's right. Um, when the first names were unsealed, my, my name was still sealed. I was still helping the FBI build the cases, so I was known as Tipper X uh, in the press. So I could kind of see these tipping charts that um, uh, built these cases, and I could see on, on preach charts that there's Tipper X. So um, that was, I figured out that was me. And so my name was sealed uh, for a few more months, December 2009, it was my time to plead guilty and self-surrender at the FBI. So I was handcuffed and fingerprinted at the FBI um, in downtown Manhattan, taken into the U.S. Marshal's office, and then I go and see uh, Judge uh, Swain in the Southern District for the first time. And I can tell you it's very humbling to see the charging document, you know, United States of America versus Thomas Harden. So no matter how much I helped these guys, whether I thought, you know, I was somewhat delusional during this period, uh, sort of a double life thinking, oh, maybe maybe these guys are going to hire me because they're telling me I'm doing such a great job, very exclusional, or maybe they're going to drop the charges. And so you see the charging document, you know, they're not dropping the charges. So I took uh, one count of securities fraud and then one count of conspiracy to commit securities fraud. And my sentence uh, was based on a guideline then of uh, 30 to 36 months. So for financial crimes, there's the guidelines based on the amount of money. And I was looking at a 30 to 36 month uh, sentence had I not cooperated, we were hoping for something less. So your guidelines are based on um, the amount of money, 30 to 36 months. And, and I know somebody who's facing that amount of time, that that's a huge amount of time. But somebody as a former federal prosecutor, which I am, that's a really 
small amount of time. Right. So talk a little bit about the amount of money that was attributed to you in terms of your sentence um, and how much money you made in this case. Yes. Um, so of the four trades, uh, my attribution on the profits as a junior partner, so my, my firm uh, made over $1 million on these trades, not me personally, the firm. But as a junior partner, as a junior uh, partner after our limited partners take their share, uh, my my take on the four trades was uh, forty, a little over forty-six thousand dollars. So at twenty-nine years old, I technically threw away my career for over a little bit over forty-six thousand dollars, and I never considered the amount of money I was ever making on the crime, which really often puzzles people. Like if I had this information, why didn't I try to make millions? Well, then I would have definitely been caught. I never considered the amount of money. I never considered ever being caught. Um, and so forty-six thousand. Once I saw that. Uh, and the document, as far as that's my disgorgement that was calculated um, by the prosecutor, I thought, oh, my God, that's it. That's the price of my career, um, $46,000. If you weren't thinking about how much money you're going to make, you weren't necessarily thinking about the fact that you could go to jail, what, what were you thinking about um, when you were trading on material non-public information? Uh, to be honest, I was just playing along. Um, I had this information and I bought a little bit of stock. Um, you know, if this behavior was going on as reverently as I was hearing about in the industry and seeing, uh, you know, these stocks uh, often run up before mergers and acquisitions announcement and seeing all the options activity occurring in 2005, 2006, uh, once I finally got a piece of this uh, information, like in my mind these other firms are trading on, um, I just went ahead and told myself, you know, I'll just I'll buy some stock too. Um, I never, it's it's silly today, but I never considered the idea of ever being caught because I was trading at such a small size. But at that time, that's what I was able to tell myself. You were facing 30 to 36 months based on uh, the amount of money and the specific facts of your case. But if if I recall correctly, you could have been facing up to 20 years in prison. Is that right? That's right. I guess that's the maximum. Um, that's what they put in the uh, the press, and that's what all my friends and family saw. That they thought I was going away for 20 years. That was a. Those were tough conversations. My name was finally unsealed January 2010. Uh, front page of the Wall Street Journal. Tipper X revealed. I knew it would be a bad day for me, and obviously for my wife because she has the same last name, um, and she was the only one that knew. <laughs> but anybody that knew me on that day had to raise their hand and say, "Oh my God, I know this guy." Um, whether we only talked a few times a year or had an email from me. And so everybody that knew me was put through the ringer. You know, let me see your emails. Let me see your phone records with this guy, Tom. Why do you know this convicted felon? Um, so it's been over eight and a half years since my name was unsealed. I'd say most people that day still won't talk to me because I've only heard the second, you know, the worst days of their career uh, was the day they had to raise their hand saying they knew me. So this idea of, you know, who am I hurting starts to, starts to unravel. Um, I had to tell my parents. Um, they lived in Georgia. I lived in New Jersey. I wanted to tell them face-to-face -face and separately told them, and that was, uh, you know, pretty awful, just breaking their, their hearts and uh, telling my family. So this idea of, you know, I wasn't hurting anybody, wow. You know, I, I, I hurt everybody, uh, you know, that knew me in any capacity. Tom, talk a little bit about the ways that you justified your conduct as it was occurring. So I can tell you that I definitely – rationalize, uh, you know, who am I hurting? Everybody's doing it. It's a victimless crime. My version of doing it isn't as bad. Um, I could still think of myself as a good person. I, I describe my trades as these are immaterial trades, thinking back 
Um, so I used uh, reduction words to try to minimize the perception of my conduct. You know, some of these other defendants, I think, said all I did was or merely or I might have. So my my idea of minimizing this in my mind was this idea of these being immateriality. By bringing uh, Buddy 1 and Buddy 2, my friends, you know, who I called with the information, by being able to bring them across the line, I think those peer reactions on this conduct, when they both went along with it too, had an impact. And by no means, and I'm not trying to blame anybody else for what I did, but thinking about di different factors as to who I surrounded myself with, um, having this one individual, Khan, and probably the five people I talked to most in the industry, uh, was certainly a factor. Of course, she was my tipper, and I stress to people today that, you know, you're the average of the five people with whom you surround yourself, really make those choices wisely. If you have any inclination, you know, in your networks that you have somebody that might be unethical up to no good, obviously drop them out of your network. It's not worth staying in touch. So I look at a lot of these factors, um, you know, engaging in, in isolated decision-making and really not having a, a, a mentor that I could bounce things off of. In the, in the industry in 2006, I understood this behavior to be pretty rampant when I finally got the call in March 2007. If I had had somebody uh, that acted more as a as an older mentor for me in my, my in my 20s when this all happened, I'd like to think, you know, somebody would have slapped me around and said, Tom, you're already a junior partner at this fantastic organization. Why would you ever do this? You know, put it in the context for me rather than me just sort of engaging in this type of decision making uh, on my own. Did you do anything to cover it up as you were as it was happening or were you just brazen about it? I mean, you said that lots of people in the industry were engaged in this kind of conduct. Was there anything that you did to cover it up or did you just do it openly? Uh, it was it was open. I, I didn't do I didn't try to backtrack or make any uh, cover ups or any reasons. Um, I just I just did it. Put the stocks in the portfolio, um, and really just never considered the idea of ever being caught. Um, thought you know 2007 went by. Uh, we already had a great year that year, and these stocks, these four trades, only added one percent to our already great performance. So it was like. These were just, again, immaterial trades that nothing would become of this because, um, you know, if they weren't prosecuting these other firms that were rampantly doing this for years, why would they ever look at something like I was doing so small, you know? Were there any sort of critical questions that you failed to ask yourself at the time um, that might have changed your decision-making? You know, it's a good question. I think about today, um, Obviously, I'd, I, well, I'd like to think if I'd had more substantive training about the elements of insider trading, the, the, the consequences of crossing the line, had uh, listened to other individuals tell their stories about, uh, frankly, you know, throwing their careers away, that type of thing. Had, had I heard about the consequences and the immateriality doesn't matter, doesn't matter how small the amount is, maybe that type of training, I don't want to say it would have changed the outcome, but it would have, maybe it would have helped or maybe it would have kept me from, uh, Engaging in this, just understanding the consequences. I think today when I talk to firms, uh, you know, the importance of putting more of this fudge factor training into their training programs um, to always feel like that nobody's above ever making one decision to have things escalate and throw their careers away. So just bringing more of the gravity of what could happen. And, um, you know, I think it would have helped to have had more training and a better professional network and, and, and a mentor outside the company who I could have just bounced things off of as I saw them in the industry. When you're saying this, you're really talking about sort of the awareness of um, of what is potentially a crime and what the consequences could be. And you've also talked a little bit about uh, addressing gray areas or, or wading into and moving into a gray area. So 
I have a sort of a two-part question for you, which is how would you instruct young people in the industry to approach a gray area when they see one? And how do you teach people to recognize that something is a gray area in the first place? I think it starts, uh, obviously, with, with training um, young person, uh, choosing the right firm to work for. I think not all firms uh, have the culture from the top down about always raising your hand in the gray areas and getting the questions answered. More often than not, I'll have one-on-one conversations with individuals saying, you know, it's a great point you're making about raising your hand in the gray areas, but at my firm, it's not easy to do. And so I think to the extent that we could have uh, more firms just say, hey, this is our culture, raise your hand in the gray areas. And to your point, it's often not a stark fact pattern. I'd like to think, uh, you know, had I gone to compliance at all or, or bring it by an outside counsel, obviously this would have been shut down. Um, you know, of the 80 people charged in perfect hedge, I'd bet, uh, I, don't, I can't prove it, but I'd bet that not one person uh, went to compliance and got their questions answered on their, the fact patterns of their trades, all acted probably alone or without that input. So I think always raising your hand and getting that, that input from somebody on the outside and knowing that at your firm, it's okay to do that. Um, I just think more firms need to go in that direction with their cultures and not everybody is there yet. Tom, did the structure of your firm or your position in your firm uh, affect at all your decision-making process? Um, at my firm, I mean, I was a junior partner trying to hide it uh, from my senior partner. I think one one parallel we can think about today is every firm wants to say they have a great kind of tone at the top, but it's often, you know, what what's happening actually at, at the middle? If, if what rules are people following? Uh, what is sort of the uh, immediate supervisors, you know, often have probably the greatest impact on the firm's culture rather than the C-suite? So have firms, have companies actually mapped out the possible subcultures at their firm um, some of the recent insider trading cases at hedge funds, I can see where traders or analysts going rogue because, you know, the the rules in the middle aren't the same at the top. And so uh, having more attention to that and training and understanding on, on from the C-suite kind of what the subcultures are at the companies is one direction uh, we should be moving in because it's often, again, those immediate supervisors um, who are going to have the greatest impact on the firm's culture. So do you have any advice on, on how to identify a rogue subculture within a company? I mean, there's a couple things that I've done. Um, some of my training exercises is actually had the compliance officer uh, go back and go into emails and, and actually uh, print out the five people that their uh, investment people talk to most. And that's often sometimes can be revealing, you know, when they go back and look at those conversations or the investment analyst themselves can look at those people and try to understand, okay, is this a person that I should be talking to this much? Um, not that that would catch anything per se, but that uh, people would have a heightened sense of awareness as to who they're, they're talking to the most and thinking about that more. You know, again, today with everything that's been invested in technology, especially with the SEC and some of the bigger firms, I mean, this type of fact pattern in my case, I think would be caught and flagged early. Um, but uh, trying to understand also, again, going back to kind of mapping out <coughs> subcultures, um, What's the tone at the middle? And that's, I don't have a very scientific way to do that. You know, what's, what, what are the, what are the immediate supervisors doing? Um, and is it the same as the C-suite's advocating? Tom, can you talk a little bit about some of the consequences of having a felony conviction? How has it impacted you? How has it impacted your family? How has it impacted um, your friendships and your career? So it's a life, it's a life sentence, even though I wasn't eventually sentenced to prison. It's a, it's a, you know, I'll never get rid of it. 
And so it's the stigma of always having to, to check the box, um, applying for jobs, checking the box. And it's almost like a white-collar felony has looked at worse. I, I was talking to a law school, and a, and a young law student told me when he was 19, uh, he had a felony. He got a felony for assault. Uh, he was drunk in a bar fight, but he was going to go work for a prestigious law firm because he could say he was 19 and he acted stupid and didn't learn from that. But at 29, committing a white-collar crime is really no excuse. Um, and so also... You know, my daughter asked me to be her soccer coach in her little league. She's six years old. And I went to fill out the paperwork to be a coach. I had to check the box. I told the commissioner, you know, this is a nonviolent crime, but I do have a felony conviction. And he said, look, we have insurance with the league. Felons can't coach children. I'm sorry. Um, and so the negative dividends of this felony conviction keep on paying. I mean, I can't even have a checking account in my name because I committed a financial crime. So I looked at the same as a Bernie Madoff by banks just because I am a financial felon. Um, so just trying to get back on my feet and not have a checking account in my name, is uh, it's it's hard to overcome that hurdle. So it's I don't think about it every day, but it just it comes up a few times a year. And knowing that it's going to be that way kind of as a life sentence, um, definitely something I did not consider back when I placed those four trades. Tell us a little bit about what you are doing now as your career and um, how you're helping people. <laughs> to avoid some of the pitfalls of the decisions that you made? Sure, absolutely. I mean, today uh, I, I speak about my crime. I had no plans to ever speak about my crime. It's um, not something that I really ever wanted to talk about. Very ashamed of what happened and what I did and throwing my career away for 46000 Uh But I got a call from the FBI about uh, two years ago, so that was August of 2016, and I thought at first I thought, oh my God, what do these guys want? Because <laughs> uh, I'd already been sentenced, and the agent at the FBI asked me to come talk to the rookie agents at the FBI about my case. Um, I think my sense is the forty-six thousand dollars I made was at the lower end of all the AD people charged. So that would be interesting, kind of the psychology of why somebody throws their career away for that amount of money, which we which we talked about. And from there, uh, I was encouraged uh, by some of the agents at the FBI to go out and start sharing my story in the industry. And so what I do today is uh, there's a couple avenues with it. It's basically either compliance training for investment management firms, um, conduct risk training for investment banks, so the new analysts and associate classes that come in every year, um, other engagements with inside, inside banks. Uh, I can talk to legal regulatory um, risk individuals, and then also talking to law firms, associate classes, kind of as a cautionary career tale. And the way I talk about it is some of the elements that we just discussed in the conversation in terms of, um, you know, engaging in isolated decision-making, fudge factor, who am I hurting, crossing lines my whole life. And people have come up to me afterwards and said, you know, when you came in, I saw your bio. I thought I'd never be able to be this guy. You're a convicted felon. But as I talk, um, people have said, oh, you seem like a regular guy. You kind of seem like me, actually. And then you made these decisions that escalated. What am I capable of? Not that anybody's going to be a future felon, hopefully, but what on self-reflection, like what am I capable of um, in terms of making a poor decision? Where am I career? Where am I day-to-day uh, business? Could I be engaging in this type of decision-making and not talking to anybody? And so what I often hear is I'll give the talk, and then several weeks later it continues some discussion on these points that we that we talked about, which is kind of nice to hear that hopefully young people today, when they hear it, will always remember, you know, what I went through, and unfortunately I have to wear that crucible. Uh, but if it's going to make a difference in the industry, you know, uh, I'm going to continue forward and, and, and do it. So I'd like to think if I was 25 and heard my story, you know, 
somebody that was uh, 40 uh, at 25, you know, it would have made an impact when she called, hey, I heard that guy's story. This is really not, this is not worth it at all. So that's the idea. Not that anybody hopefully is going to be in the same position that I was in my career or, or same fact pattern, but it, it could come up in different areas. Um, you know, people can always try to justify why they should cross that line. And so I think that's just an element of human behavior. Um, when I spoke at the FBI a few years ago, we were talk I was talking to one of the agents, you know, why does this happen, you know, again and again? They said, you know, every eight, nine, ten years, you just have a new crop of people in the industry, uh, people thinking, you know, uh, they forget about, you know, the old cases and, uh, this is human behavior uh, to some degree, rationalization, that type of thing. And so um, the goal is just to continue to share the story and, and make an impact. Well, you talked about um, some very important factors. You, you talked about sort of being excited about the fact that you could say that you had some information. You talked about a gambler's high. You talked about um, young people speaking to you and saying, you know, it's easier said than done to speak up if you think there's something that's going on. So all of these factors play into your decision-making and the decision-making of a young investor. What advice would you give a young investor to avoid going down the path that you went down? What advice would you give a young investor to sort of staying on the straight and narrow and making uh, legitimate trades and their money in a way that is that is ethical and successful at the same time? Absolutely. Um, on the investment management side and a young investment analyst, um, you know, your job is to dig and dig and dig and get information and create a picture of a company, a potential investment. And you're going to get into situations, whether you expect it or not, where you're going to dig up information. It's not going to be clear whether it's, uh, you know, if it's non-public material or is it obtained in a breach of duty. And it's not your job as the analyst to try to go through the elements and figure that out for yourself. Again, it's worth just knocking on your compliance officer's door, having a 15-minute conversation, even bringing an outside counsel to go through that fact pattern of information just so that you're not, you know, you're not trying to commit fraud if you're doing that. Um, when I speak to investment firms now, uh, you know, you should be going in at least every six weeks if you're doing your job and digging and doing the research just with those questions. I would be concerned as a CCO if I have an analyst who's, picking great stocks who's never coming to compliance and ever having any conversations about anything. I think that's a potential red flag or somebody worth investigating or talking to or interviewing. Okay, how are you doing your work? What kind of information are you getting? Who are you talking to? I pretty much think anybody, you know, should be knocking every six to eight weeks on the door of compliance and just going through a fact pattern. Hey, I was in Asia. I had all these meetings, uh, these conversations I'm not sure about. Uh, let's just go through it. And, you know, you're probably clear to most cases, but if you're not, if you have to restrict that stock until that information comes out, you know, that's, that's part of the business. So always just making sure that you're getting those questions answered um, and not acting on it alone, not engaging in this type of uh, decision-making. And even if you have the information, even if it's not part of your investment thesis, if it's material, non-public, obtaining a breach of duty, like the stock has to be restricted. Um, there was a an ex-SEC enforcement attorney who I knew through my case, who I now met, who was a defense lawyer, and he he was telling me a story about a young, young client he had who was an investment analyst who had M&PI and told himself it wasn't part of his thesis because it was his biggest position. He didn't want to be restricted in his stock. And it sounds like, you know, not knowing anything, but this, this individual is being defended by this lawyer. And so here's a young analyst who was 29 who wasn't doing what I was doing but told himself, 
this is my biggest position. I have MMPI. I'm ignoring it, not part of my investment thesis. It's like if you have it, you at least have to get your questions answered, and that's going to often be restricted. So I think that's where the nuance is today, hopefully not a stark fact pattern like my case, but it doesn't mean uh, that, you know, these, these cases are here to stay. So. So Tom Harden is our guest today. Speaking with him, he is TipperX, um, and he runs a company called TipperX Advisors, LLC. Tom, can you tell our listeners how to reach you uh, if they want to engage you in some additional compliance training? Sure. It's, um, my website's uh, com, and I'm uh, Tom at TipperX, uh, one word, dot com, and I have um, – testimonials on the website from past clients, all of my, my public speaking engagements. Most of my speaking engagements are, are in-house where I have NDAs, but I have individuals who are who, will, uh, who function as references for me just to talk about the in-house talk. So uh, that's where you can find me. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Uh, really appreciate your honesty um, and the difficulty that you went through in dealing with this case and in what you've done with your life since then and trying to assist people in, in not making the same mistakes and going down the same path. So thank you, Tom, so much for sharing the story with us today. And I'm going to turn it back over to Greg. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the Daily Risk Book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.